Father, we thank you that you are all truth. You can't lie. It's not in your nature, Lord God. And yet there are so many things happening in this world that are so against you, Lord God, that are lies, that are deception, that are keeping people from you, Father. And we pray that today that we might hear some things that you would keep in our minds, Lord God, that will help not only us but those who we speak to. Pray for Nathan as he brings your word, Lord God, that that be strong, that your Holy Spirit uh, teach each one of us uh, what it is that you want us to learn this morning. We pray these things in and through the name of Jesus. Amen. It's nice to uh, be back amongst you all again. It's been a while. Jules and I have had a wonderful uh, couple of weeks away, which we've enjoyed, Uh, but it's lovely to be back amongst uh, God's people here at uh, Canterbury Gardens. I'm looking forward to this morning. Uh, I hope you are. Uh, it was interesting, I, a couple of weeks ago I was preparing uh, for a sermon, not this particular one, but uh, sometimes I actually uh, will uh, go through the introduction and I'll verbally uh, expound that. And I was at home by myself and I, I thought, oh, I'll give this a red hot go, I'm going to really, really get into this introduction. And my dog was sitting to my side. And within about uh, 25 seconds, my dog had scampered outside and she was cowering in the kennel. So I thought, oh, I better tone it down a bit. <laughs> so I hope this is not going to be the experience this morning for you, that uh, you all flee the place and start cowering in the kennel, because it's a weighty subject. You know, we, uh, we live in a confused world. And I think if I, I spoke to you individually, you would all say, yes, it is confused on so many levels. The things we uphold, the the, the biblical truth that we uphold, uh, such as creation, such as the fall, such as sin and morality and ethics, life, death, the afterlife, all these things are consistently eroded under the banner of our culture. Our culture is known as a a post-modern culture, so that means it's the the next phase after the modern culture, which was the phase after the baby boomers, which I think probably covers us all. But we're in this culture, and uh, thank you to to Beth and Nathaniel just for sharing the, the battle that you face, particularly in that educational environment, you see, because truth is no longer absolute according to our culture. But you know what? This is not a new thought. This has been going on for generations. You go back to three or 400 BC, the, the Greeks and their philosophy would be considering the same thing. You had different types of orators and different parties of oratory and, and one particular group would say, I will twist the truth as much as I can just to win the argument. My name is Soetus. And you see in um, John chapter 18, you have this confrontation between Pilate and Jesus before Jesus' crucifixion. I'll just read it for you. Uh, John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. Jesus answered, You say, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus' direct question to Pilate, if you are of the truth, you will listen to me. What was Pilate's response? Pilate could have been a postmodern. He said, oh, what is truth? What is truth? And you almost want to get out and shake Pilate and say, Pilate, don't you see he is standing in front of you? He is the way, the truth, the life. He is revealing God full of grace and truth. And you sit there and you don't see him. I hope that's not your experience today. I hope that's not your experience that you've heard and and listened and, and been instructed about Jesus, but you don't see him. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So it's not it's an age-old problem, this whole wrestling with truth. We live in times where the deconstruction of truth is at the heart of our tertiary education system. It's at the heart of many things we hear, our media, public opinion, our politicians. Deconstructing truth time and time and time again. You see, postmoderns flatly, flatly reject the idea that truth is fixed, that truth is universal, that truth is objective, and that truth is absolute. I'll go through those again, so if you're taking notes, you can think through those, those four things. You know, biblically, we maintain truth is fixed in the person of Christ. In the purse of the triune Godhead, as we'll discover shortly, both Father, Son, and Spirit claim to be truth and are truth. It is fixed. We claim that truth is universal. The gospel, the message of the gospel is universal for salvation of all. We claim that truth is objective, based on historical accounts, and it is absolute. See, the postmodern will, will rip down every one of those facets. They'll rip down the fixed nature of truth, the universal nature of truth, the objective nature of truth, and the absolute nature. So the question for us today is how do we face that? How do we live as gospel-centered people in this culture, in this society, as we're constantly exposed to our Truth claims being reduced to nothing. How are we to be a truthful church in a confused world? How are you and I going to uphold 
the truth. See, you're going to be considered the minority when you maintain the full sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. That's not just in the society in which we live, that's within the church. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Truth is not just eroding inside our society, it is also eroding inside the church. It's slow, it's subtle, and it's undermining our belief system. We need to be very mindful of that. And we need to get back to the Word of God, which is fully inerrant and fully sufficient. They're not separated. You can't on one hand say it is inerrant and I believe in the original documents as God gave it to the the human authors that it was inerrant. And yet on the other hand say, oh, it's not quite, it doesn't quite explain this, that or the other thing. Inerrancy and sufficiency are together. Um, We've had a major case of that in the last week. Inside a predominant church inside the States, where one of the, uh, I'm not going to mention the fellow's name, you can ask me later, but he was maintaining that scripture was inerrant but not sufficient. That's heresy, folks. Straight out. Scripture is inerrant and all sufficient in all areas of life. See, when you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, when you believe that your sin is dealt with forever by Christ's wonderful substitutionary sacrifice, when you believe the words of Jesus when he says, I am full of grace and truth and I am the only way, truth and life. When you believe that God is creator and sustainer of this world. When you believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within you to guide you into all truth and to sanctify you into the image of Christ. When you believe the miracles of this Bible are supernatural by a supernatural God. Folks, you're in the minority. Not just within the society, but within the church. So we're in a battleground. We're in a major battleground. And we're fighting this battle on two fronts. We're fighting it on the on the battle of the culture of our day, which consistently places this postmodern view of life over the top of us. Through our schools, education institutions, through our workplaces, through our politicians, both locally and federal. And we're also fighting it within the church. So how do we face the challenge? How do we face this challenge? How are we to be a truthful church in a confused world? How are we to uphold truth? How are we to speak the truth in love? How are we to show and display the grace and love of Christ as we interact in this environment? How are we to be gospel-centered in our approach around divine truth? That's the question we hope to answer today. And to help us answer this, I want to spend some time just uh, 
first, or secondly, understand the culture in which we live in. But firstly, understanding what God's word tells us about the triune nature of God in relation to truth. So let's just uh, quickly look at this. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be doing a, a, a sort of like a Bible drill today. There's going to be a few references here and a few references there. So uh, please stay, stay with us as we go. So we'll go back to Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, and I'll just, for context's sake, I'll read from uh, verse 17. If you haven't got a Bible, please help yourself. We've got Bibles up to the side here. Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version for those of you who have electronic uh, apparatus for that sort of thing. So here we go. Uh, yeah, I think I'll read from uh, verse 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Saviour. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded in all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And what did he say? He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I do not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I by myself have sworn. That means I've taken oath by myself. I've spoken by no other higher authority than himself. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. It's a wonderful chapter of scripture if you haven't read it before. But what the, the overarching character of God here is he is truth. And what he says will come to pass. So we should take the word of God seriously based on that testimony alone. Let's move over to Hebrews chapter 6. I think um, it was read this morning by Brad. And it's, it's just a wonderful reminder that we worship and serve a triune God of, who is truth. Verse 13 of Hebrews 6. Well, then God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you and thus Abraham having patiently waited obtained the promise verse 18 so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie he who had fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us reaffirms God is truth. God the Father is truth. Let's move back to John chapter uh, 14. We're going to spend a little bit of time in John this morning. Explain some of these things. John 14. This is when Jesus has his disciples around him. It's the, the Last Supper, as we commonly know. He's giving some final words of encouragement and instruction. He's showing what it means to be a servant leader. 
and he prays for it, for them. In John 14, he's just, he's just said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be concerned about the way of the cross. Believe in me. And he talks about the only way you can believe in the, and have eternal salvation is through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on in, in verse, um, we'll pick up verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be you, with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. It's a promise of the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit described? As the Spirit of truth. Let's move over to John 16. Because then Jesus explains what the Spirit Holy Spirit will do within us when we put our faith and trust in Christ. These are simple things. I know you know them, but it's great to be reminded. Verse 7 of John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Just think about that. Jesus has been with these guys. He loves them deeply. He's been discipling them for three plus years. And he says, oh, by the way, it's to your advantage that I go. Because something better is going to happen to you. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to, to you. And when he comes, he will do three things. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the rule of the world is judged. I have said these things. I, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Primary role of the comforter. To take God's word and to illuminate it to you and I. Christ has not left us alone. The Spirit dwells within us so truth can be developed. And we see this We'll see this a little bit further as we go through this morning. You see, Jesus Christ himself was, as I've said before, one who is full of grace and truth. And salvation is only through him. Christ is truth revealed. Paul goes a little bit further in the letters. If you go to, uh, let's go to Ephesians 1.13. get a little bit mixed up with uh, the three or four small letters Galatians eat potato chips okay 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's just a little bit of things we've got. There. Get a bit of fuse in there. Galatians, eat potato chips will help you get in an order. Ephesians uh, 1.13 says, In him you also ha- you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Move over to Colossians 1.5. Sort of expands this a little bit. Uh, we'll start in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the death, burial, resurrection of Christ is the word of truth personified. It is the gospel. And that truth should be underpinning our lives to move us in such a way as to worship and to serve Him. That should be the thing that compels us. The love of Christ compels us to serve. The love of Christ compels us to obey. The love of Christ compels us to worship. And... uh, that's the truth of the gospel. So we've seen that the, the triune nature of God through the Father, Son, and Spirit is truth personified. God cannot lie. The Spirit brings all truth to our account. And the Son is truth. And that's opposite to what the culture throws at us. So for us to be a church that is gospel-centered and, and founded on the truth, we probably need to understand a little bit more about what is in opposition to what we're doing in today's society. So we're going to briefly go through a few things. and These have been covered by the panel. The panel was great, wasn't it? Did you enjoy listening to that? Please pray for our young people. They're in a battleground. It's a warfare. But I think we need to be understanding these issues and we'll have a, a brief talk about these things. Al Moller, in, in a book titled He Is Not Silent, uh, Preaching in the Postmodern World, provided a really helpful summary about, um, or I, what I thought was a very helpful summary about what are the heart issues of postmodernism. I've written them there and... Uh, you can see that the six areas, the deconstruction of truth, the death of the meta-narrative, the demise of the text, the dominion of therapy, the decline of authority, and the displacement of morality. I'm just going to give you a very brief overview. So if you're taking notes and you want some, some greater uh, observations in here, please come and see me later. But I just want to help you understand where the culture is coming from. And not only the culture, but some aspects of the church. And I want you to consider as we go through these things, well, how as a church, how as a Christian, can I be truthful in amongst this confusion? So the deconstruction of the truth as we heard, postmodernism actually rejects the very notion that truth is fixed. 
that truth is universal, that truth is objective or even absolute. They argue instead that truth is relative, plural and inaccessible to universal reason. One particular arm of the postmodern thought is that this whole thing of deconstruction, so if we can water things down to such a level, then actually truth dis dissipates. And their view around this is that um, your social group itself constructs your own view on what truth is. So you get together as a group, say it was a, a sporting team or a, a family unit or, a, I don't know, Helen Steiner Rice Poetry Reading Group. Um, you get together as a group and you can actually start um, constructing your own view to meet your own needs about what truth is. So therefore truth isn't universal, it starts with you. And therefore truth is made and is not found. Notice that major subtle change, would you? When we're committed to studying God's Word, what are we doing? We're exploring God's Word to find truth. Postmodern says, no, truth is made. It's not found. It's not universal. There is no absolute. It's not fixed. It's subjected to my thinking and reasoning only. You see, this has major implications when it comes to the Gospel. Because we believe the universal truth of the gospel, and we believe that the gospel sets sinners free, it is objectively, universally, and historically true and flies directly in the face of postmodern thought. As part of this process, postmoderns try to kill the, the meta narrative. And that's a I don't like that word, I couldn't think of another word, but if our models used it, I'll use it. So, meta narrative, it's sort of the big story. Right? It's probably a better way of putting it. And the Bible is the big story of redemption. It's how God has seen a sinful race and has put a story in place to redeem. And it's an expansive account of that truth. But from a postmodern perspective, they'll see that as incredibly oppressive. I think the best said that. They'll see that as incredibly oppressive and therefore must be resisted because there's truth that is universal. The main truth is that you're a sinner and you need saving. And as we'll discover further down this, the, these points, that appalls a postmodern the demise of the text. Postmoderns have started to go around this idea that it's not the reader who establishes meaning. Uh, sorry, it's the reader who establishes the meaning of the text, not the author. Have a think through that for a second. So if you as the, the reader establish meaning, there generally are no controls or limits or meanings that can be imposed upon what you're reading. And the results will generally draw to the fact that there will be nothing that's supernatural and there will be nothing of God. 
Ik heb die eigen in het vier. The dominion of therapy. It's another postmodern view. And, and this thing here is where self esteem becomes the primary focus of the being. My good and my well being. Enhancing my self esteem becomes the cry of the postmodern. It will lead to rejecting the issue of the depravity of man. It would lead to rejecting sin altogether. When it becomes all about your own self-esteem, right and wrong, get moralized. There come no absolutes. They get discarded. This can also happen in the church because this can lead to a false gospel. where the truths, the biblical truths, such as lostness and judgment are replaced by acceptance without repentance and wholeness without redemption. You can see this through the whole prosperity gospel treaties that is on every pay-per-view television set in the States. It's all about your best life now. There's no talk of lostness, no talk of judgment, no talk of repentance, no talk of sin. Folks, Christ came in grace and truth and he pours out his love and grace to redeem us from our sin. So we can have a relationship with him that is so full and so rich that the world will look on and not understand and give glory to God. Not some gospel that says it's your best life now. We've read through Acts through most of this year. Were you struck by the amount of suffering? Were you struck about the persecution of the church as the word of God was proclaimed? That's not an easy life. That's the life of Paul to. You see, this type of view, this dominion of therapy will, will, will lead to a fact that um, we may not even know or even care if we're saved or lost, but we certainly do feel better about ourselves. That's the type of approach that we end up by that type of heresy. And it infiltrates the church. We replace scripture, which is all sufficient for all areas of life, and go down another track. Because we don't want to be obedient to God's word. We don't want to wrestle with the issues in our life. I'll leave that there. Postmoderns will also look at declining authority. It's all authorities denounced, deconstructed, and cast aside. Just think about the standard postmodern family when they're children. Think about that model of chaos where there's no authority of figure. No boundaries. Just chaos. And one of the other things of postmodern thought is the displacement of morality. We see that more than often today. Have you not noticed in the last five years just the slippery slide 
It's no longer at 5 degrees, it's now at 60 degrees. Every time you turn on the television set, every time you read a piece of media, every time we are, are, as a society, falling with things that God has said no to. You know, homosexuality is no longer considered a sin. As if you're, it's your homophobia that is now the target of sin. So they say, you know, you're the sinner because you're homophobic. So demands for tolerance of alternative lifestyles have morphed into demands for public celebration of all lifestyles and as morally equal. It goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on. That is not what Scripture teaches. So this is what we face. However, as followers of Christ, we have a different worldview. Praise God for that. Praise God that God has empowered us through His Spirit to give us truth. Let's look at John chapter 17. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He first prays for himself in verses 1 through 5, and then he prays for his immediate disciples, and then he prays for all believers. I just want to tune in on one verse today. And it's the verse that Jesus said initially to his disciples, those men who were with him, those 11 who were with him in the upper room. As Judas had departed by this time. He says this in 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And further down in verse 20, the, the focus of the prayer changes. And he says, I do not ask just for these only. So he's referring to the, the 11 that are with them. He says, I'm not just asking for those men around about me. but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In essence, Jesus is saying and asking, well, this is the instruction directly to you guys who are going to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, that you'll be sanctified in the truth consecrated to the truth. But not just for them, for all those who will follow. So this is a a wonderful prayer of Christ our Saviour to us today. He wants us to be sanctified in truth. Consecrated to the truth. And how does that happen? Your word is truth. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 19. I'm going to give you some quick observations in Psalm 19 because I think it's very helpful when it comes to thinking about, okay, how does the word shape us? How does the word sanctify us? How does the word draw us to truth? Remember that the Spirit of God is taking God's word. So the helper is there convicting us, leading us into truth. This is an encouraging thing because we're not alone. God's Spirit dwells within to enable us to, to, to stand on the solid rock of Christ. Psalm 19, verse 7. 
just, there are six wonderful statements in here. The law of the Lord is perfect for reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the law is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You get that? God's word, God's truth is perfect. Perfect. God's word is sure. God's word is right. God's word is pure. God's word is clean. God's word is true. Oh, that we just read God's. You want to consecrate yourself in the truth. You've got to read God's truth. You've got to meditate upon God's truth. You've got to ask the Spirit of God to shape you and mold you in His truth. Because when you do this, it will revive the soul. Don't we need reviving of the days now? And I hope when you come here on a Sunday morning, this is part of your revival for the week. That your soul is revived because you hear the word of God. You're challenged, but you're also led to worship. God's word will also be trustworthy. It will impart wisdom. If you want to know how to parent your kids, look at God's word. If you want to know how to pray for your grandkids, look at God's word. If you want to have a rich and beautiful relationship in marriage, look at God's word. If you want to come overcome anxiety, look at God's word. If you want to see what the promises God has for you that will give you hope, look at God's word. God's word is right. It causes joy. Rejoices in our heart. That's what it says here. Rejoicing the heart. It gives us joy. It gives us an insurmountable joy in the midst of persecution and trial. I hope that's your experience. If it's not, give them to God's word. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. And it brings righteousness. Be sanctified in the truth. Allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart. Read God's Word. I would encourage you this week, grab hold of Psalm 19, grab hold of these verses from 7 through 14, and write out what God's Word is. If you want a bit more of a stretch, go to Psalm 119. Read all 176 verses and, and find out what it tells us about the importance of God's Word. Go to 2 Timothy 3.16. Think through how God's word shapes you. And I should do that this week. And finally, how do we relate and communicate the truth that we know that we'll be slandered for because it is Absolute, it is fixed, it is universal. 
I think Ephesians helps us here. So turn with me to Ephesians 4, just quickly. We'll conclude here. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, that each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Can't overemphasize this. As followers of Christ, our truth claims aren't something to be whacked over someone's head with. We're to be constrained by the love of Christ to speak the truth of Christ. Constrained by love. And at times, it's going to be very difficult because at times people are going to offend you. But our response is to speak the truth in love. This is incredibly convicting. So I want you to think about that this week. You think about the arguments you've had with your postmodern friends. You think about the arguments you've had with whoever. And in your own heart, think, have I spoken the truth in love? Have I prayed for that person? Have I committed them to the Lord? Have I left them over to the Lord to do a work in that person's heart? So be encouraged. Be encouraged as a follower of Christ. Christ himself has prayed on our behalf that we'll be sanctified in the truth. He's provided his spirit to convict and guide and sanctify us in the truth. He's provided his word for us to revive our souls, to understand its trustworthiness, to have great joy, to enlighten our eyes, to endure forever, to plant in our a seed of righteousness. He's instructed us with our neighbours, with our postmodern friends, to speak the truth in love. And the truth we are to speak is what? The word of the gospel. Colossians 1.5. So be encouraged, church. We are in a confused state, but we have divine truth.